This podcast is brought to you by DC Music Publishing. Find out more at dcmusicpublishing.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Behind the Music Business podcast. My name is Danny Champion and this is my little independent music podcast or rather independent music business podcast where I speak to a whole range of different individuals about their time and careers in the music business, about their journey through the industry, about how they got into it and about why they have taken the path that they have taken. Um, A big chunk of my career over the past six or seven years has been in education, where I've spoken to a whole range of people interested in getting into the music business, as well as those already in the music business looking for new opportunities. And so on top of my music publishing business and synchronization and music supervision that I do, I also do this to offer a bit of extra insight into the music industry or the business or the industry that I've called home for the past 20 years. Uh, episode 80 today of this podcast and it is a conversation with the president of DICE, Russ Tannen. Uh, Russ is a Brit but is based in New York, has been for just over a year now and we spoke at the end of July 2022. Uh, We spoke about DICE and about what him and the company are doing at the moment and what they're trying to do to change, to disrupt everything that's going on in live music. Um, We talked about how the pandemic impacted them um, being a a company that's quite embedded in live music um, and how things have progressed since the pandemic as well. Uh, We also had some really interesting conversations about how he found relocating from the UK to the US, about his beginnings in live music as as a promoter on the Isle of Wight when he was still a teenager, and also his love of running. So very much behind the business rather than just the business itself. So, uh, yes, thank you very much for continuing to listen. This is episode 80 with Russ Tannen, president of DICE. Twenty twenty two. We're halfway through twenty twenty two now. So how has twenty twenty two been for yourself and for Dice in general? It's it's uh it's it's been a really it's been a really, really good year. This is our first year fully like back. I think the first quarter was still a little bit disrupted with um Omicron and everything. So like there was a lot of shows that got pushed to the end of the year, but yeah. um, it feels like the first kind of normal ish year. Um, and, I, and I think that everyone's been really enjoying that. There's, there's been some really special moments already this year, like going to South by Southwest uh, after many years, and obviously two years without that happening. Yeah, was, I bet. Was really, 
it was a, it was actually my favorite ever one um and i've been going going to that for a long time it was much smaller kind of back kind of felt like the first year i went um and then we've just had like a couple of the so, so there's, there's there's been these surreal things where um we work with primavera in spain and we start we signed our partnership with them in in 2019 and we worked with them extremely closely I through the whole it. pandemic and we you know worked with them on live streaming we've done all these things but we've never actually done the festival yeah. <laughs> so it was very emotional you know to go after all of the all of the things that we went through with postponing and everything and um yeah so that that was really nice and and there's, there's been lots of there's been lots of highlights honestly like uh, launching in ibiza with dc10 and and starting the season there has, has been really special as well and and in the us it's just been a big growth um year for us and mm -hmm. we moved into our office six weeks ago and that's been the first kind of physical manis manifestation i think of the success and the growth that we've had yeah um, i'm i moved here in april last year and um there's three people on the team in New York and now there's 70 people in the office wow. here. And yeah, it just feels really like, oh yeah, we're really doing it. So um, yeah, so there's been, there's been a lot a lot of highlights. It's been, it's been fun. I was gonna ask, when did you do the move from the UK over to the US? So you've not been over there for I've been what, just over for a year now. Year and a year and a bit, yeah. So um, kind of made the call in uh, sort of September uh, of 2020. And then it took a horrendously long time to get the visa through because right. the embassy was shut and all yeah. the rest of it. It was peak COVID, obviously. <laughs> um, I ended up having to go to Bermuda for two weeks um, to to like get into America okay. and do and stuff, which was funny. Um, There's worse places to go. There, there is worse places to go. Yeah, um, although everything was very closed <laughs> when I was there. Fair enough. Um, and then yeah, so it's been it's been the it's been the the last year and a bit, and you know a lot of that's been because we we signed a lot of um, major venues in New York, um, including you know Avant Gardner and elsewhere and Saint Vitus and just lots of very um, iconic um, spaces that that came over to to Dice and many others, mm -hmm. um, and then and really now we're we're just focusing on like growing around the rest of the country and opening up new offices and everything as well so um yeah it's been about building the team and delivering on all these partnerships that we're doing and yeah it's been good how have you found it personally doing the whole move i honestly i absolutely loving it i uh <laughs> i i've been in london for 15 years yeah. um it's a good good stretch and uh i think there's something about moving city and um sort of throwing yourself in the deep end mm -hmm. with, with it that's just uh very exciting honestly and, and it's been a lot of fun um and also just kind of you know, 15 years in london like promoting and and running venues and you know being around knowing everybody and like all of that it's kind of like you kind of start from scratch a little bit when you move city yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. been going out a lot again and like going to a lot of shows and going to a lot of the venues um, and, and hanging out with everyone and, and kind of building that up just on a personal thing. Um, and yeah, I just really loved it. It was, it's, it was an interesting time to move. So I was here while everything was still shut when I moved. Okay. And everything opened up in kind of May, June sort of time. Yeah. And the shows came back in July last year. So I was kind of here for this moment where the city kind of came back to life again. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, I bet that was, that was a, an interesting time to be over there. 
yeah, it meant I got a great deal on my apartment and it meant I got a great deal <laughs> on the office. And um, yeah, and it meant that I was kind of here for those special moments that have been well documented um, and that I experienced a lot of firsthand, which was the first time that people were going out to shows again, the mm. first time people were going out to big club nights again and just being like completely emotionally overwhelmed after you know all that time without it um and also playing like a big part in that as well I think you know if you look at New York City pre and post um pandemic the the main uh, difference is actually that dice is here now and in a, in a significant way okay and what that means is that the way that people if you're going to independent venues in in New York especially in Brooklyn you you you're using dice to discover um what's happening it's, mm-hmm. it is your port of call for what is going on um and and when you think about going out you think about dice and that's just wasn't the case before the pandemic because of all the partnerships we did during it so yeah, yeah, yeah. it's been it's been fun to 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 play a big part in that in the recovery of the city and as somebody who's visited new york but not stayed there how much is going on because for those who who don't live there you kind of assume that there's everything happening all at once all the time is you know... all all the time <laughs> all at once it's absolutely completely true it never yeah. stops there is always something to go to there is always something happening i i sleep a lot less than i did in <laughs> london um, which is saying something considering yeah, london yeah. is london is busy enough I lived there myself for 10 years and yeah, I'm quite, I'm not from London, a bit like yourself. And I was very much, I was ready to go when when I left. But I think you've kind of gone the exact opposite way. Like, no, I I need this, but I want more of it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's exactly it. But you know, there's there's some big differences actually that you don't pick up on until you live here. So one of the things is that Obviously, in London, a lot of pubs shut at midnight and the kind of typical license would be till midnight for yep. just a pub, whereas almost every bar in New York runs till 4 a.m. every night. Like, that's just when bars close. So all the nights are kind of a bit more extended uh, in terms of being out. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot more late like, nice, late night licenses, um, especially in Brooklyn. Um I think when Eric Adams was the borough president of Brooklyn, he did a lot of work to make sure that there's a lot of nightlife happening, especially in Bushwick. Um, and, you know, so it's typical to go to a club here where the headline DJ will play, you know, 5 a.m. till sunrise, you know? Right. <laughs> like, yeah. So, like, it's late, you know, it's late. It's a later later city. And, and there is just, like, a there's thousands of things you know happening all the time and um that's why it's such a great uh city for us to have a big presence when you know the, our whole mission of our company is to get people to go out more so mm-hmm. it's a city where you know it's like do you want to go out tonight well there's these like 20 amazing concerts happening or there's these 10 amazing club nights or there's this great festival happening up the road you know yeah. so there's always something um and then there's obviously all the other layers of you know just other types of um you know, food and bars and cultural experiences and everything else that you know that we don't really touch, but is kind of part of the experience of going out. So part of the ecosystem yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. It's what yeah. what musically is happening at the moment there. Is is there a is there a trend towards certain musical events that you're seeing? 
Are you seeing a big kind of uptake in, in certain types of nights out or is it a little bit of everything or is something that you weren't expecting suddenly having a resurgence? I think that there's, um, well, it's, it's hugely um, diverse here, obviously a city this size. Um, there's two things that I really picked up on. One is that I think that for the larger clubs that we're working with, um, like house and, and techno is like becoming much bigger than like um more like what you would think of maybe as like traditional more like american edm mm -hmm. like more cheap kind of edm like it's definitely skewed much more to towards house um yeah. which is um which is really awesome and the other thing is like i i think that the the, the hardcore scene in new york is like many times bigger and healthier than the hardcore scene in in london at least as i was ex experiencing it in london so um yeah it's like my first show when i moved here was completely by accident i was walking through the east village and i heard what i thought was wisdom and chains coming out of a speaker somewhere and then i'm walking towards Tompkins square park and it's wisdom and chains like playing in the park <laughs> and Murphy's Laura playing and everything. And it was this kind of controversial show because they actually got the license for the show by um, saying it was a 9-11 memorial, which obviously they shouldn't have done. Right. Um, that's how they got the permission, I think, to even put something on. Um, and it was just a proper hardcore show in the park. And it was uh, amazing. And I was texting my friends at Libya being like, does like Murphy's Law like always play <laughs> in the park on Saturday afternoons? And I was like, no, where are yeah, you? Yeah, monthly. <laughs> yeah and, and you know that and that's obviously one end of it but like really if you look at a venue like saint vitus like just the level of programming the breadth of heavy music that they cover but you know some of the incredible hardcore shows that they've had just in the last year that i've that i've been here and, and, and many other venues as well um it's just a very healthy scene here and you kind of feel it um as you walk around you kind of see it you know you see a lot more people that you think yeah they're like they're in that scene is that still like where you're, you're, you've, you kind of gravitate towards the punk and hardcore scene? Because I've obviously, in my research, that was one of the first things that jumped out at me as someone who was, I've been in heavy metal bands and that's kind of my scene as well. So I was really keen to kind of find out whether or not you, you're, you're still kind of embedded in that stuff and you're still kind of seeing where, where the opportunities lie in there and you're still kind of looking at, at that area of, of of music as much as as everything else yeah I, I i think that for the last like seven years now i guess i think turnstile are like the best life band on the planet and watching them grow so much has been one of the most exciting things i think um to see a band like the first time i saw them was in a like a like in a like a hall like not a venue in tottenham like yeah maybe i guess like seven maybe eight years ago maybe mm -hmm. longer i can't think now um and uh and they're headlining brooklyn mirage uh in october here in new york which is our biggest club venue where they're actually using it on a monday for this you know five and a half thousand capacity outdoor hardcore show um where like the support is snail mail and jpeg mafia with turnstile you know it's such a good representation of how they're managing transcend genres yeah be like legitimately an incredible hardcore band that has you know roots in like real hardcore scene like that's that's you know completely um you, you know just like an incredible example of like how um hardcore bands can actually like become 
much more bigger culturally and significantly than than just kind of something that's underground and subculture. So um, yeah, I'm like super, like someone asked me recently at a, an offsite that we did on the team, like, where are you, um, where are you most yourself? And I had two, two places I feel super comfortable. One, kind of at the edge of the pit, but like maybe <laughs> the the room, like not in it anymore. But like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm with you on that one. And the other would be like, just like in the DJ booth at a really good club night, like just behind the DJ. Like I feel like very comfortable at DC 10 stood behind Seth Troxler and just like in the same way as like, I would be very happy, like at just the edge of the St. Vitus show watching a great hardcore band. So um, those are the two, those are the two genres that I really like gravitate towards at the moment. Okay. It's an interesting one that cause I, so for the past, what, six or seven years I've been, um, well, when I became freelance after leaving London, I also d do a fair amount of teaching. And so one of the things that comes up a lot is how, I guess that tribalism that happens, happened rather with musical genres when probably we were younger, because you had to pick, you know, when you were buying CDs and things like that, you couldn't go and buy a little bit of everything. You kind of had to mm. pick your lane. And now every single year when the students are getting younger, you know, they're all born in the 2000s now, which makes me feel very, very old, but they're all not into one thing. They, they, they listen to loads of different things. Everything is, is, is influencing everything else. And surely that's, that's going to happen in the in in the live events as well, isn't it? Is that you know the hardcore bands are going to going to get influenced, or rather, the people in hardcore in hardcore music or in metal guitar based music are going to be be being influenced by electronic music and vice versa. And so, what the venues have to do, what what the events are, is going to be kind of this amalgamation of the two of them. So you might have to. Kind of find some happy medium between st standing behind the the DJ in the DJ booth yeah. and at the edge of the pit, or maybe some sort of weird way of getting to both of them. It's it's no, I I think that I think that's absolutely right, and I guess it's a um, it's a byproduct of uh, streaming and just the access to music that people have, isn't it? Like people yeah. people don't have to choose like so much, but um, I do think that people still like gravitate towards like tribes in a way. Like I do think people want to be seen as part of a group. Um, and I think that music is such a big signifier of which group you are in. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that, that you can do that and also be interested and proud of being into in a serious way like many more different types of genres as you may, maybe would have before. I think that's it. Yes, all those genres are kind of starting to smush together. And so the tribe yeah. you are in is of this kind of amalgamation of something that didn't exist maybe five, 10 years ago. Yeah, I uh, we just did a Boiler Room event. So we acquired Boiler Room at the end of last year. And um, we did an event at Brooklyn Mirage Avant Gardner um, a few weeks ago in New York, which was sold out 9,000 people. And this is kind of a good example of that, where you look at that crowd, mm -hmm. incredibly cool, young, um, diverse audience. Um, but the artists playing like super diverse. Like, so you had like young MA playing and then like that went straight into Derek Carter or you had like Blade playing and that went into Dennis Salter. And you just kind of thought like you had these 
it was just like so well curated mm -hmm. and like everyone was just you were listening to like hard hip-hop and then into like very like traditional like house and techno and the audience is just there for all of it in an equal way and they're just like going for it the whole time and it was kind of a good kind of physical example of that at this huge scale of like nine thousand mm -hmm. kids going mad like it was it was really good already touched on it a little bit but why music i think this one of the, the the conversations that i have with a lot of people here it's not about how you do stuff it's very much more about why so yeah so what what is it about music for you personally when how you related to it when you were when you were younger and you know why 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 are you where you are now i i was like i was such a pop music freak as a kid like I lot like I loved like Spice Girls and like I, I was just like I was just like so into it. I was, my, one of my proudest moments still is that I got Letter of the Week in Smash Hits magazine, <laughs> I got, and I got I got a pen and twenty quid for That's the thing. Bad. Not bad when you're like twelve years old or whatever. Yeah. Like, um, I wrote them this weird letter, which was they were about to do the Smash Hits tour, and it was Spice Girls and Backstreet Boys. And I said, look, like, I think you guys need to reconsider this tour lineup. Otherwise, they're going to have babies and have like a super group. And, you know, it's like, it was <laughs> weird. Love like, it. Love just, it. Like, you're just like, I was just reading it back just recently. I was just like, that's such a weird letter for them to have picked as letter of the week. You think they would have binned it. But, um, but no, I was, I was really obsessed with that. And then um, I think like I you know I, I i went on that journey from you know you're like really into pop music but like very obsessed with it to, and i was making zines like i was making like lyric zines where i'd like type up all the lyrics and print them and take them to my school when i was like 13. okay i didn't know like about punk zines or whatever and then you know started to get into that wave of heavy music which is you know new metal and like like that was my me and my friend so like yeah yeah so it was like i remember taking the bus to go and get the like papa roach record and it was just like the most exciting journey of my life like going knowing that at hmv they were going to have the cd that day and like yeah. it was so incredible and then and then there's a few different moments i think that hard to pinpoint exactly but like that really changed like what i thought of as good music i think and okay. one of them was sitting at the drive-in on um tfi friday Right. And just being like, oh my god, they're still my favorite band, and I was just like, I've never seen anything like it. Um, the other was uh, I used to hang out in this skate shop that was just down the road from me. I hardly ever bought anything. Bless the guy that ran it, Colin. Um, but there was a there was a band from the Isle of Wight, um, and they uh, called Blocko. And one of the guys from Blocko basically came in uh, with a bag of records for me one day and said, "Listen to these records, and you know this is." like good like punk, <laughs> this music. is music <laughs> this is music in a bag and you know so i went home and all of a sudden i was listening to you know black flag and minor threat and like crass and like all these like oi records and cock sparrow and stuff like that I was, it was just like an a to z but um i really remember just thinking wow like i was so i was so turned on to especially like the american like hardcore sound from mm -hmm. the 80s and like but then to my office, this, the only picture on my wall is a is a picture of Ian Mackay, like on the wall behind me. So like, nice. I just like I I um 
I um yeah, I just kind of really got obsessed with that. And, and at the same time as when I was starting to go to shows and stuff as well. Like I remember um going to like see Pit Shifter at the Portsmouth Pyramid Center. I might um, have been there. Depending on the year. Because I, I so I, I lived um I'm from Sussex originally. So I yeah. I'm I was in a band called Sticklebrick in the nineties. We were based nice. in Chichester. Uh, and we used to play at the Wedgwood Rooms a lot in Portsmouth, yeah. and I pretty much lived at the Pyramid Centre and Wedgwood Rooms in kind yeah, of the but, late nineties. Yeah, I was so I was on the Isle of Wight, and uh, you know, I'd I, I'd like started to go to shows, I guess, when I was like thirteen, and I was uh, just doing a paper round, which was ten pounds a week, and the ten pounds, you know, every two weeks I could get a ferry ticket, which was ten pounds, and a gig ticket, which was ten pounds. Oh, I could go to Wedgwood. Yeah, and wait two weeks, go to a show. That was it. That was all I could do. But it was amazing. Like, and so I remember starting to go to a lot of those shows. I remember going to um, London to see Deftones with Linkin Park supporting, which was like was just a, yeah, amazing show. At the, the at the what at Docklands, which is now Docklands. what the yeah, 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 I was there. Unbelievable <laughs> show. Factory opened like just like a mad lineup and. Um, and we all dyed our hair for the show. Like I've got blue hair in all the pictures. It's amazing. Nice. Um, so yeah, there was all these things happening, and then and then I really was very influenced by um, what I was learning about Ian and what Discord was and what Minor Threat meant and like what Fugazi was all about. And mm-hmm. um, I realised that there were so many bands I was getting into, punk bands that wouldn't come to the Isle of Wight. You know, their last stop would be Portsmouth because they didn't want to pay for the ferry, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I started booking these bands when I was like 15 to come over and play um, in this pub on the island. And I wasn't even like allowed into the shows to start with because it was 16 plus to go in the pub. So I'd literally book the bands. They would turn up, be freaked out that the person they'd been emailing was a 15 year old, <laughs> specky kid, like with long hair. Like, hey, I'm Russ. Like, uh, I've been emailing you. And they're like, oh my God, what is this? Um, and I'd be like, look, I'm just gonna watch your sound check. I won't be in for the show, but this is Dan. He manages the pub, and you know he'll make he'll make sure you're good for drinks and everything. And then I would wait in the car park with my mates and listen to them through the back door. And then they would come out at the end of the show, and I'd pay them in the car park enough they'd go and get the ferry home. And you know it wasn't long before I was 16, I could watch the shows as well. But really started to promote a lot, and just I just got so obsessed with that side of it and like this thing. Yeah. What what meant that you gravitated towards putting on shows rather than starting a band or and being on doing, the stage well, i was doing bands as well so i i was playing in bands my band um and my first band was called neglected youth nice. and it was uh it was a it was a new metal band and we won the battle of the bands to play the first isle of white festival when they brought it back so like we were the opening band on the main stage for like uh, the charlatans and Robert Plant and everything. Like it was, it was so weird. There's these great pictures of us all like really like rocking out. Um, and then and then I was playing in like punk bands and hardcore bands as well. So I guess it was maybe 50% because I couldn't get to as many shows as I physically wanted to because right. the ferry was so expensive. It was easy to get them to come to me. And the other was I was probably trying to get my band some more shows so I could always support. <laughs> nice. <support> <laughs> so there was an ulterior motive in there somewhere. It's like, I'm going to put on these shows and maybe yeah. I'll just put myself on as the support band. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that was I think that was a big driving factor to it. So, yeah, I um, 
So when was, when was the, when when was this? Is this are we talking kind of late nineties, early two thousands sort this of time? Twenty no. So this is tw- tw- well, yeah, exactly twenty years ago. I'm thirty five now, so it was when okay, I was fifteen. So yeah, so two thousand and two. Okay, because um, when I one of the big, okay, I guess one of the real big wholesale changes in the live music, I guess ecosystem. For, for me was when I was in bands, when I was 16, 17, 18 in bands and our fans were all 14, 15, 16 year olds, we were able to hire the local village hall and put yeah. on our own shows. We could get the license, we could, get a, we could pay a sound person, we could pay for lighting, we could get like proper all out, you know, smoke machines. Like yeah. we, we, we decked it out really, really well. And we'd still walk away having made a couple of hundred quid yeah. because we had that That's many huge. people going yeah. to it. And then maybe a year or two after we stopped being a band because university and all that sort of stuff, all the licensing changed so that you could only, you couldn't get the licenses, you couldn't do the paperwork, you couldn't get the insurances for non-venue venues it had to be in a pub it had to be in a place which suddenly limited the whole scene because new bands coming through whose fans were all 14 15 couldn't go and see them when they were playing that pub gig i didn't realize that that had changed a lot of the shows i was going to would be especially in guildford um and in overton Right. Um, the promoter there, Daz, he ran a label called Cat and Cakey Records and right. lived in Overton, which is this tiny little village in Hampshire. And he would do these shows in this village hall there with, you know, there must have been seven, eight hundred people there every mm. time. And it was just that world. It was just that MySpace kind of world. <laughs> but they're an amazing band. Like he would book incredible bands, bands from the Miracle Play all the time that we would just think was the best thing ever that we were getting to see. And, um, and you know my band's played there a lot and stuff like it was and it was completely different to yeah like going to a venue to see a show like because yeah. everyone's just hanging out outside and there was no alcohol like it was all just yeah well there could be because you know you have to bring it in yeah yeah exactly <laughs> i didn't realize that had changed that's a shame if that's the case yeah i vaguely remember being at a an event in London where they were talking about it. It was like a UK music event or something like that, where they were kind of there was a, a big old debate happening about what this what this means for grassroots that you can you can't just find a building and put your own yeah. shows on. Because I was just thinking, yeah, because if that was the case when I was in bands, I would we wouldn't have had a fan base and we wouldn't have got to the kind of local level that we were at because all of our fans were doing their GCSEs at the time. And so you kind of think that, you know, that there's a big hurdle in the way for kind of the next, the next generation of, of, of groups that you kind of have, you're, you're having to rely on venues. Um, I don't want to say proper venues because that's a little bit disingenuous, but you know what I mean? That there's kind of, there is a kind of a, there's a big barrier in the way. Yeah. Is uh... Is that something from, from your perspective now, with that are you are you trying to are you looking at every way that you can remove barriers from people who want to put events on oh yeah i think anything we can do to to help people 
put on shows. Like, I booked, I, I, um, I booked at the 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 old Blue Last in Shoreditch for a few years, um, and I remember there was a lot of young new promoters that were um, booking the venue and doing these small new band nights and everything. And then I remember like just a couple of years ago, and that's a long time ago now I was doing that, kind of speaking to the guy that does the job um, now. And it's like a lot of the same people. And we were talking about there's this kind of lack of people coming in to to want to be promoters. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we need there needs to be a lot more um, done, I think, to encourage people to take that route and that, for people to understand like what it is to, to be a promoter and start booking bands and do that. I think it's such a great route in um, to the industry. I think um, we're also very supportive and excited by events that happen in non-traditional spaces as well. Like we love working with venues. We also love working with promoters like the promoters we work with in New York is called Tech Support and they do these incredible warehouse parties where they're right. like taking over these huge warehouses and doing these things and I and I love all of that too. I was actually at an event, um are you, are you familiar with Sonra, Sonra Orchestra? No. Yeah. Incredible like jazz, uh, like freeform jazz uh, group. Um it's been going for many, many years. Um but they were playing a show upstate near Woodstock in a sculpture garden with no stage, no lighting, just like them set up and there's like 20 of them in the group and they wear these incredible outfits. All the songs are about going into space and kind of like intergalactic travel. And stuff. Okay. It's like really interesting, very, very experimental and awesome. Um, and they just played until the sun went down. Like it was just like too dark for them to carry on. Like <laughs> there was no lights. So So like we love all of that. Like yeah. we, we love things like that to be happening. Um, yeah, it's, it's very cool. Like live music can be you know, all these different types of things. You know, another show I went to last week in Woodstock is uh, at Levin Helm Studios, which is um, Levin Helm from the band. Um, it was his like recording studio, now it's a venue. But that's another non-traditional space where there's no alcohol or food sales. Everyone sort of turns up, parks outside this barn. Um, you sort of have a beer in the back of your truck or whatever, and uh, you go into the studio and it's in, and it's actually this incredible barn that's set up as a venue. and um yeah it's just like this cool spaces that can be used for live music and the way that we experience live music and the types of things we can experience uh changing all the time i think um so well and and that's kind of developed onto online spaces as well i guess as well considering what you know considering the last few years and how how innovative people can be with with live streaming and events digitally as well. I, I've spoken to a lot of booking agents that are mates of mine over here about kind of how how uh, interested they are in this idea of, for want of a better word, potential like infinite tickets, essentially, that you can go to see it live, but there's also opportunities if you can't, if it's not in the country that you're in, if you are, if you know, you can't, physically get there or or whatever that there there's so much um yeah there's so many different opportunities in that space which i'm sure you guys are mucking around with yeah i mean in the pandemic in the pandemic we did six and a half thousand live stream concerts and like we we, we talked talked about that a lot and um we, we've wound quite a lot of that back now we've really focused again on in real life events but we are still doing some live streams you know one great example of this would be the three shows we did with the smile recently 
Um, so in real live shows in London, where they played three sets at these times of day to suit the live stream audience at home and worked with Drift again on that. It's a company we've worked with a lot um, mm-hmm. since the start of the pandemic. Um, and, th- and those really made sense, you know, that type of thing where it was like all around their record and obviously very exciting with Tom York and everything. Like, it's just like a really cool um, and, you know, huge global reach for that um, band. So, um, yeah, like those types of things, I think, are still make a lot of sense. The other thing, obviously, is that we bought um, Boiler Room and, and working with Boiler Room now on um, everything they're doing. And it's interesting to see how Boiler Room sets can, you know, still like really take off. Like a mm-hmm. Fred against that went out two weeks ago, um, if not even two weeks ago, like five days ago. I think yesterday was already on, it was like already on almost a million plays and like right. just completely organic, just like where there's this artist who's obviously extremely talented and extremely um like hot at the moment and it's yeah. just like the right time for them to have a boiler room set and they just crush the set and then it actually like just takes off and it's mm-hmm. just this audience that's that's seeing fred again dj and perform for the first time and just really doing a, an incredible job of that so um yeah i think that there's, i think there's huge scope for live streaming and um for um audiences outside of who can actually make it to the event i think that it's gonna in in the pandemic it was very scrappy and very like yeah. over their place and like there was a lot of like you know very low quality things happening as well but i do think over the next couple of years we'll find the right place for that which mm. is probably more like what was already happening in korea like bts were doing when bts played wembley in 2019 i think they already they sold half a million live streaming tickets or something to people in korea that wanted to watch the show you know they were already doing um and it might be more like that like at the very top end of things there's these big online audiences or it might be more that it goes through the streaming services or it might be something that reverts back to kind of what was happening before with companies like amazing companies like boiler room who you know for 10 years have been making a huge success of live streaming incredible dj sets and artists so yeah it's it's an interesting space but but you yeah you said that you've actually actively gone not necessarily jumped into that space and really trying to push it you're actually kind of going well now now we've got live music back you've kind of pivoted back kind of to focusing on on the core business exactly yeah just much more selective about what we're doing with live streaming okay and um yeah we're just uh focused on getting people out of their houses which is way more fun honestly i was was gonna say is that because you as a you want you want to kind of I guess be promoting the the act of getting out and you know going to things or yeah. was that because you kind of you saw the numbers tailing off once things got back to quote unquote unquote normal and so you said actually we're probably better off pivoting back towards this anyway I I, I think that there was always going to be this inevitable moment where it changed like uh and it kind of switched but mm-hmm. um i think more now like live streaming is, is is a part of what we do during the pandemic was all we could do yeah um, but the mission of the company is to get people out more like that that's that's why it exists so if live streaming can assist in showing people what going out is like or mm-hmm. giving them a taste of what an artist would be like live for them then to go and see them at another time when they're in their city then amazing like let's use that 
in that way um, or let people experience what it's like to um, see something live. But yeah, maybe they can't afford to go to the show or can't make the show and all those reasons that you kind of mentioned. But, um, but really what we want to do is, is make sure that if you are living in Barcelona or Madrid or Paris or London or Bristol, like that you are going out mm-hmm. if there's shows happening, which there is like, so yeah, yeah, yeah. make sure people aren't sat at home watching all these streaming services and like actually get them get them out you mentioned earlier about promoters and a slight lack of new promoters coming through um, from your experience you know what what is it about being a promoter that you really loved doing what and what is it kind of what does a promoter to you need to have in in their locker i think that the two things that i really loved when i was doing that is that my main thing was curatorial aspect of it um like finding perfect support bands for lineup and understanding the nuances of what's going to work well together on a bill and what's actually going to build into a a headline set well okay. um i used to really really love um and and the, and the creative aspect of it i think really thinking about how an event is going to feel from the moment you see the artwork to how it feels when you get to the venue how the stage is going to be dressed like what are the other things that you're going to have happening there that are going to make that a memorable night for people that are going to want to come back again um i also think that the most humbling and essential life experience that anyone can have is promoting an event and having no one turn up <laughs> for the first few years of life uh, we used to ask everyone if they had promoted a show and if they said yes and we said did it fail and if they said yes then we almost always give them the job because anyone who's like mad enough to go through that painful experience of and emptying your overdraft to like pay for the bands or pay for the venue or whatever yeah. um which which obviously did happen to me a few times um you know we you know that they got the right spirit because ultimately like this is i think that most people that you meet they're very fortunate now that a lot of the people that i interact with on the partner side are people that run amazing venues or are promoters and most most and they're all independent and so most of those people 99 percent of those people are people that live for live music or for nightlife and they are deeply deeply passionate about it and yes there is a way of making a living from it but they're also not people that they're not driven by that part i don't think like for the most part people are really excited about creating these experiences for people that create a richer life for people and um i think that that's uh you know that's a nice group of people to be interacting with all the time how much yeah when 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 you were and i'm guessing you still do put on shows occasionally perhaps maybe or maybe that's something that you might might kind of drift, di- drift back I'm into <laughs> i'm all digital now we have you know there's over ten thousand events on dice any one time now okay. like we're, we're beyond that point where it's just like there's just so many events on the on the app and 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 i and i and i i think with dice what we've found a way to do um is to scale that um, impact that we can have on mm-hmm. getting people to go to shows rather than being in the position where I was at one show, one you know, show or one venue yeah. or something. But how much, how much work were you putting into the, the preparation side of things? You mentioned about, you know, really deciding on, 
on the bands to put on. It wasn't, you know, it sounded like for you, it was very much not just a, oh, wait a minute, I had that email from that person, I'll just, I'll just throw them on. It sounded like that you were really spending a lot of time finessing the shows that you were putting on. Oh, yeah. Like when I was at Vice um, booking the Old Blue Last, that was, and Birthdays, which was the venue reopened when I was there, um, and booking like the Vice issue launch parties and some of the warehouse parties and stuff that we used to do. Um, it was an obsessive um, job with listening to thousands of artists and really trying to find, um, you know, the perfects, not just the perfect artists, especially when they were international acts to kind of bring to the UK for the first time. Um, but also to make sure that the supporting lineups are always going to be the next, the people that were going to be the next thing to come through. And also trying to identify people that I thought would be amazing curators and promoters themselves. Um, so, you know, if you think about someone like Jimmy Asquith, who's now a very successful pro producer himself as Asquith and um, started Lobster Theremin, which is a huge underground techno label and production, com production company, publishing company. Um, but he we met and i thought he would be good he started a night called streets of beige and then promptly booked the first ever disclosure show in the old blue last you know right. like he you know there's people like that and, and if you look back at the stuff he was booking it was like often not busy like it there was 50 people in the park but now all those djs and producers that he was booking a huge huge yeah. time he really had an ear um and it was fun to at that time be booking a lot of grime when people weren't you know we were booking JME to play for a hundred people, um, booking like US hip hop, um, bringing over people like Lil B for like his first ever and only I think ever UK show, just flying him in to do a hundred capacity show and then leave again. And now he's kind of like, nice. you know, he was the precursor to SoundCloud rap and like all these other things, like um, booking like the first Death Grip show, like doing all these things that were just like very, um, you know, not experimental but like we were trying to be on that cutting edge of what was exciting and new and and i think that that curatorial part of that um of how the whole how a whole month would look and how a whole show would look was like extremely rewarding i think that anyone like i was 23 i guess when i started there and um yeah i think at, at that age like that's like the best job in the world like it's just super fun how how's how's that side of things influenced what you're doing now as you say, you know, well, from on the digital side of things. Yeah, when we when well, Dice is is curated, um, but now the curation comes from the partners that we work with. So we are looking at like so. If you look at um, the, the the venue programming at somewhere like elsewhere, like that's just like to me like perfection. Like they they just it's extremely diverse um, in terms of what they're programming, but like all just done with such um, care and, and choice. Mm -hmm. um, and and so we think about the types of partners that we work with and we're looking for those types of spaces um everywhere that we go and all the cities that we work in and um, same reason that we love to work with primavera it's just like how like can you build a better festival lineup than that like it's almost unbelievable every year i think and yeah. um, so that's why that's such a good partner for us so it's more on that level now where it's like okay who do we really want to work with like in the us we're working with um you know newport jazz and folk festivals where it's like just like picking you know being able to work with them like it's like a legendary like they're the first festival to use the word festival to mean an outdoor concert like it's like it's unbelievable you know this year they had paul simon come and like you know it's just like it's just an amazing mm -hmm. um, 
thing so it's like it's not genre specific but it is like who is doing who are the best like who are the best independent people that we can work with and that's the kind of level of curation that we that we give the platform and and for those who aren't totally aware of the specific role that that you guys at dice are playing with with the partnerships that you have what is it that you are actually doing for and with those partners on a day-to-day basis so so on a very simple boring level we are their ticketing partner Mm -hmm. you know we are the 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 place where people are um buying tickets for their shows what we're actually doing on on top of that is um for all of the cities um where we're becoming established or established also the point of discovery um so we drive a lot of sales through the platform because there's so much that goes into how um the, the personalization and recommendations work, which is all connected to your Spotify and Apple Music library. It tracks what events you're going to, so you're going to get recommendations. Um, you know, as soon as you come into the app, it's completely personalized as soon as you've done the onboarding. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's all this other functionality in there that's designed to reduce not just the, um, the technical um, barriers to buying a ticket that you're used to seeing with like traditional ticketing companies, like the countdown timers and the huge forms to fill in and all of the stress, we get rid of all of that. But we also get rid of the emotional barriers. So we asked fans for years, like what was the main reason you didn't buy the ticket to the show? And the main reason that people don't buy the ticket is that they don't know who they're going to go with or they don't know who to go with at all. So they, um, so, so, so the fans told us that and we built social functionality into the app because of that so you can connect with your friends that you go to shows with and it will tell you on an event level who's going to the show Mm -hmm. it will tell you who's been to see the artist before who saved the event um, and you can invite them instantly through the app or buy them a ticket through the app straight away so it's just a um there's so much in there that's gone into how we can actually drive sales for our partners um which is very different to a kind of traditional transactional ticketing platform mm-hmm. um and really kind of is um is, is one of the major things that we're doing on a on a day-to-day basis there's a lot of other things we do as well i mean we we have an artist development team which is um very different to again to any other ticketing company so we actually go out and, and promote our venues to agents and managers directly and there's artists that we work with very closely like bicep on all of their um okay. their venue selection and um pricing and um how they can use our waiting list functionality to um think about increasing capacities or adding extra dates and reduce their marketing spend so there's a lot that we do there um and yeah there's a lot of people i mean there's 450 people at dice now it's like grown a lot since when we started it yeah um, and um so was it was it just like two or three of you back in 2013 14 when you started? Yeah, so the sto- so the the, the 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 story at the start is that so I was at Vice managing um some bands yeah. on the side and I was managing a band called Peace from Birmingham and um I was about to sign them to Sony and I was I guess 24 25 years old and I really didn't know what I was doing and I knew a manager Phil Hutchin and I knew him because his wife Shannon worked at Vice as well for a time, and um, yeah, so I met up with Phil to see if he could help me out on what I should really be doing, um, and and he said yes, and we started managing Peace together and and the other bands that I was working with um, at the time, and um, 
yeah, like not long after that, I guess a year after we'd started working on bits together, I left Vice to do it full time. And, and a few months after that, like Phil started, Phil had the idea for Dice and, and started talking about how ticketing was so broken for the artists we were working with. We were doing shows with Matthew Deere, who Phil managed um, in the US, where we were trying to figure out why a $20 ticket was being sold for $40 and starting to understand how fees were working and like all of that. And, you know, we just started to get really excited about it. And um, Phil basically met the founders of a company called Us2, who do mobile um, mm -hmm. development um, for lots of huge companies. And um, we agreed to do a joint venture, basically, um, where we kind of could get the thing off the ground and, and worked probably for the first six to nine months just in our spare time on, you know, in between all the management stuff we were doing on on trying to build like a minimum viable product and like yeah, launch yeah. a little... Um, a little kind of fake ticketing company and and sell a ticket we sold a ticket our first ticket we sold was for like a mince pie and wine night in the office and nice. like it was very exciting yeah yeah it was, like, <laughs> it was very exciting um and and it, it kind of it kind of went from there and, and you know as soon as we did our um first uh fundraising round um the following summer um i made the decision to to kind of stop doing the management and um and, and work with phil on 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 building dice so um, yeah, me and me and Phil and Andrew as well, who's our global head of music now, um, we're all at the management company before and, and all okay. kind of um, we're doing this now, so like eight or nine years on. But yeah, yeah, yeah it's felt a lot quicker than that. You, you decided to try and disrupt an area of the business that was kind of led by quite a quite a significant company. It still is kind of. Would you say that the, like the influence of your Ticketmasters and things like that are is still quite a, a heavy influence on on the area of the business that you're operating in? How how do you find kind of being a player in that place with a, with with someone who has that much influence over the over the whole over the whole system? I think we play in a different. I feel like we play a different sport entirely. Actually, okay. like I, I think what we do. I think most of the people we work with would never work with Ticketmaster or or a, or a more traditional ticketing company. I think that, um, you know, one of the one of the things we set out to do at the start that we so ticketing always felt like the least exciting bit of putting on a show, right? It's like the worst bit. But it's the, so, but it's one of the most fundamentals, if not one. Of, yeah, if you want people to come in and and earn some money for everybody, you kind of got to sell some tickets, haven't you? But it's just, it's like one of the worst part of it. So like, you, you, anyway, so you never thought, like, we, I don't think Phil ever thought that he would end up running a ticket company. I certainly didn't. And, uh, but, you know, then, then you realise that's what the opportunity is. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things we set ourselves as a challenge very early was, I wonder how quickly we could get a band to wear a, a Dice t-shirt. And it was like three months in and Spring King um they were the first band played on apple music on beats uh the beats one like radio thing when they launched that and then their band shot came out and the drummer is wearing a dice t-shirt and we were like oh we did it we thought it was gonna take us like two years to build this <laughs> brand and make it this cool thing and um and actually like we managed to do that very quickly and i think that the reason that the brand sticks is is not just because we have this great creative team we just did this big rebrand that i love um, but also because I think the values of the company come through. And I think that when you come to Dice to buy a ticket, I hope you feel that, you know, we are there really thinking only about the fan experience. Whereas basically every ticket company before us has kind of 
they say that, that they obviously everyone says they, they think about the fun experience, but it's quite clear from the user experience of actually the product that they don't really think about what that is like. And mm -hmm. I think that that's, um, you know, that's true. Of, that's true of basically every other company in the space. So mm -hmm. I think we, um, yeah, I think we've, we've kind of set ourselves apart there and um, continue to have that as a huge mantra in the business, which is that the only customer that we have is the fan um, and not to get distracted by all the other directions that we get pulled in on a daily basis. So yeah. just to try and keep the fan experience in mind. What's ahead for DICE? So we've, you, you mentioned at the right at the beginning about what how 2022, the first half had, has had started. What's what's happening that you can, that you're in a position to talk about for the next half and, and into next year and beyond? Well, um, from like a growth perspective, a lot in the US, we've just opened our um, office in Nashville. Um, we've just launched in Miami. Um, we signed space in Miami. How, how, big... how, how long are you gonna be spending in all of those places as well? <laughs> all the time, just <laughs> everywhere. Um, and, and really, you know, the, the independent venue scene, I guess, in, yeah. in North America is incredible. Mm -hmm. I think it's, you know, um, one of the great things that came from the pandemic was uh, Dana Frank set up Neva and she just um, unlocked this kind of power that the independent sector has here. And, uh, you know, as part of that, had this huge um, grants program um, put through the government and it was the biggest ever grant system billions of dollars paid out to independent venues that was biggest ever arts um, grant um, that's ever been passed um, the other thing that that created was this amazing database basically and realization I think in the country that there is thousands of amazing independent venues here and, and many many hundreds of those we would we would love to be working with and are, and are talking to about working with so a lot of growth in North America cool. uh, which was a big part of why I'm here mm -hmm. um, and then, in, and then in Europe and, and the rest of the world as well, we just launched in Germany. Um, so that's going really well. Um, we're setting up all the operations there and, and that's the biggest live music market in Europe. So um, UK is actually second um, to Germany. And so we've, we've, um, we've just done a couple of really big partnerships there with an amazing company called Good Live. Um, so excited about um, all of that. And then uh, on the product side, you're going to keep seeing like really nice, like fan friendly stuff. There's a couple of things I can't quite talk about, but mm -hmm. one that we're just kind of like live testing now is like our first um, buy now, pay later tool, which is a really good one for some of the more high price tickets. And, um, you know, we're just thinking about more and more functionality that's going to help people get to more shows. So, um, yeah, there's a lot to come on the product too. Is, is a subscription style model something that you guys are kind of mucking around with? at all um not right now um but i think that there's probably something to explore around like a membership or something because um, that's, that's something that i've again from talking to local agents and things like that about kind of what they're talking to venues about and this idea of they just someone just says subscriptions something like that yeah so that's about as far as it's got <laughs> so it's always I, interesting yeah. to see what people think about when when that word gets gets banded around I think what people, I think what people are, 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 when people say that now, what I think people are thinking is how do you 
get more shows to sell out and how do you work on getting distressed inventory out to people um because obviously every venue is really making money at the bar and they really just want the shows to be full um i don't think when people say that they're thinking how do you get these really hot tickets um for given to people at like a lower rate because they're on a subscription or whatever like i, I think what they really mean is like how do you sell out more shows and how yeah. do you increase attendance and um, I think that what's interesting about subscription models around live is that it's been done badly so many times that I think when we do deep dive on it, there's loads of great case studies on what not to do. Um, <laughs> and I think that there's some good stuff um, that we are already doing that you could um, create some sort of membership around. But um, yeah, it's all uh, more more down the pipeline that one. So okay. we'll have to do a part two and we can talk about that. <laughs> nice one, nice one. My final question has got nothing yeah. to do with music, nothing to do with live music at all. Um, are you still a keen runner? Oh yeah. Are you yeah, still yeah. doing that? How, how did, first of all, how do you fit that sort of stuff in around what I'm sure is an excruciatingly busy schedule, including well, being out all the time? We, the, the first year we started Dice, I, my, I was in the pub with my mate and, and he challenged me to run a marathon. And I'd run a bit, you know, all the time. It was more of a hangover cure, honestly. Um, so I, uh, but I said yes. I turned up for the marathon the following April and literally went home in an ambulance. I fractured <laughs> my knee. Wow. I was just completely unprepared, and I had all these underlying injuries I didn't know about. And yeah, it was it was bad. Um, but I think I'm so competitive that that experience of do, doing a terrible job the first time made me go on this insane path that I'm still on of running these longer and longer mm -hmm. um, ultra marathons and. It kind of went from running marathons, trying to break three hours, breaking three hours, and then wanting to do 50 milers, 100 milers, 24-hour races. And um, I, to be honest, training in New York has been less than training in London, um, mostly because I find it much harder to run on the pavement all the time. Okay. And so I'm getting injuries a lot. But I run six days a week. I run in the morning before work. And um, yeah, so what, I, what time are we talking here? I'm out the door by half six, okay. seven. People can check my Strava. <laughs> <laughs> nice, and and I'm I'm someone who has got him since having a. Well, I didn't have the baby, but since having a baby, have been getting back out there. So, what what tip would you give someone who has been a casual up to ten k runner, who is keen on kind of doing the same thing as you, as as kind of of increasing the mileage? I, I think that the biggest game changer is being properly hydrated. It's like completely underestimated, especially through the summer. So make sure that if you, well, firstly, get a handheld water bottle, always run with it and use some sort of salt tab or hydration tab in that. Um, it will change uh, everything about your running. Um, so yeah, that would be my number one tip. Cool. It's an easy one. Nice easy one. Russ, thank you so much for this conversation. I've loved the whole thing. Thank you so much. We got there in the end, and yeah, the, sorry about the, the, sirens, the sirens didn't put us off too much. No, thanks so much, Dan. I appreciate it so much. Honestly, yeah, thanks for having me.
Massive thanks to Russ for giving me an hour or so of his time. We had a bit of a full start, and we also had to contend with uh, the fire alarms going off in his building, but we managed it all the same. So really appreciate uh, the conversation. And yeah, it was really nice just talking to someone who has such a, a, a similar um, a similar way into the industry i.e via the same types of music and then going into some into an area of the industry that's completely different um, if you're interested in learning a bit more about dice then find their website at dice.fm they're on instagram under dice fm they're on twitter under dice fm and they're also on linkedin under dice dash fm uh, russ himself is also on linkedin find him at russ tannen and as he said at the end uh, if you're also a keen runner, uh, then find him on Strava. Um, I am not on Strava, uh, not yet, so you can't see how slow I still am at running. Um, thanks, as always, to Bloompool for the music. Uh, please do find him on Spotify at Bloom slash Paul. Also listen to his Moonlight Sessions playlist that is on spotify as well if you are liking his stuff i'm sure you will like the music that he curates for that playlist um, get in touch with me by going to my website dcmusicpublishing.co.uk and then going to the contacts page there um, i'm going to take a bit of a break from these for a while um, as I said, this is episode 80, so there's over 80 hours of these conversations. So those of you who are new to this podcast, please do go back and listen through some of the older material, uh, some of the stuff that was pre-pandemic, during pandemic. Uh, there's a really, really good, even if I do say so myself, range of conversations with very different people in the industry. So until I speak again, thank you very much for listening. Uh, and goodbye.